Um, so I don't, did I introduce myself when I stood up here before? I'm Tom. Um, and, ooh, I just hit the kickbox. That was fun. And I, I wanted to make sure I introduced myself because we're entering into this series on, um, on the names of God. And depending on when you came to know me or maybe who was even around you were introduced to me, you may have heard me referred to by other things, right? Growing up, I was Tommy or little Tommy because my father, my grandfather, and my cousin were all named Tom. Right? And listen to me, ready? It's, not, it's Tom, not Thomas, no middle name, K the third. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's some, sometimes it, I just get referred to as, as TK. Um, my Aunt Betsy has a few cute little affectionate nicknames that, that she calls me. Um, some really unfortunate timing. Um, most of the tenure of me being a youth pastor coincided with the height of the popularity of SpongeBob. And before I started losing my hair, I used to wear a flat top. And so I got referred to as Tom K. Squarehead a lot, right? That was, that was kind of, and I still, like, those, those, Patrick still refers to me as that occasionally. Not, no, I said occasionally, right? Occasionally. Once a, okay, once a year. Um, so our names in our, our current cultural moment are not, uh, not very descriptive. I mean, aside from that one, that's a nickname that doesn't get used that often. But generally, like when parents are, are thinking of a name, they, you know, maybe we might get to, well, here's a, here's a handful of names, and when the baby's born, we'll see which one fits, that, that kind of thing. But in the Bible, names are way more significant in terms of a person's character and their attributes. And this is true um, not just of, of people, but of God as well. And here's the funny thing about God. Um, God is not God's name. God is a, a title or a category, like chef or pastor or doctor. The Old Testament authors have a couple names that they use to refer to God. God has a couple names he re- uses to refer to himself. Right? So these are some of the names that the Old Testament... If you're looking in your Bible and you see G, capital G-O-D, the original translation was either El or Elohim. And that refers to the power and the might and the creative force of God. El is singular. Elohim is plural. So like the royal we, like the majestic plural. It, um, it, it's used to convey importance and, and gravitas, right? Big, bigness. If you see L, capital L, smaller case O, smaller case R, smaller case D in your Bible, that's Adonai which is another title, right? El, Elohim, Adonai, those are titles. It means um, master or owner. Oh, one really important thing that I forgot to mention about Elohim, it's not, so God is the Elohim. There are other Elohims. Like an Elohim is a supernatural being as opposed to an earthly being, right? I want to show you this verse, um, after, so Yahweh is God's special name. That's his covenant name. This name is so special that the Jewish people wouldn't say it or write it. I still have some Jewish friends who won't say it or, or write it. It's that, it's that significant. But when, in your Bible, when you see all capitals, L-O-R-D, that's what, what is happening there. So this is when God is talking to Moses and he's given the Ten Commandments. Here's all of these. And Elohim and God spoke all these words. 
I am the Lord, Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other Elohim before me. All of those in, in two verses, three verses. So those are the Old Testament authors. Then there's what God refers to, how he refers to himself. I am who I am. When he's having a conversation with Moses at the burning bush, Moses is like, who am I going to tell people sent me? A, a bush? God is like, you tell them, I am who I am sent you. This is like such a mind-blowing concept. Not only is God saying, I am being, I am, he is the source of all being. If God did not exist, we would all cease to exist. The trees would fall, the earth would spin out of control, all of it would just, would just cease to exist. Paul goes back to this in the New Testament when um, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. I think that's in, in uh, Acts. And then he talks about God who is in all, through all. And there's one more in there. Um, a lot of alls, though. That's I am who I am. And then in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we spent almost a whole sermon in the spring when Moses, God is talking to Moses again, and God refers to himself as the Lord, the Lord, gracious, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, compassionate, forgiving sins to a thousand generations. Those are two ways that God refers to himself. Then there's this other layer. It's like God is so big that we have to have all these different ways to name him and describe him. So these all kind of speak to God's transcendence, his size, his mind-blowingness. There's another kind of set of names that the biblical authors and the people stories who are captured in the page of the Bible speak to God's imminence, his closeness, his relational, he, the fact that he wants to be in relationship with us. And the first one we're going to look at is the God who sees me. And this comes from the story of Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave woman. Um, and this is in Genesis chapter 16. So my hope and my prayer this morning is that you would come to a greater understanding and appreciation of who Hagar is, because she a lot of time gets pushed to the side in the story, and we focus on Abraham and Sarah. You would have a greater appreciation and understanding of her. But more importantly, you would come to know personally that the God who created all this, who if he ceased to exist, everything would spin out of control, he sees you. He sees you. All right, so this is Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to read through, and I'll, I'm going to stop and comment as we go. Now, Sarai, their names, God changed their names a little bit later. But Sarai, who is, comes to be Sarah, a Abram's wife, comes to be Abraham, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. We've got to know Abraham and, Abram and Sarai's backstory. God calls Abram out of his homeland, calls him out of Ur, says, Abraham, I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where yet, but I want you to go. And to Abraham's credit, he takes the step of faith, and he does. I've shared this with you guys before. My kids had an awesome kid's Bible growing up. said, God told Abraham to go. Abraham went. It's awesome. That's like the two-sentence two sermon, fantastic, right? He starts out fantastic. But when things get tough, he, he screws up. There's a famine in the land. So as they're making their way to wherever God wants them to go, they go to Egypt because they hear there's food in Egypt. Apparently, Sarai is a beautiful woman. And as they're heading into this foreign land, Abram is worried that the Egyptians are going to kill him and take his beautiful wife. So he says, Sarai, tell them you're my sister, so I'll save my own neck. 
So that's what they do. She agrees, and Pharaoh says, she's beautiful, I want her, and she becomes part of his harem. God intervenes as he does. Like, this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this message. God steps into our messes, the mistakes that we make, for his glory, for our good, and for the furtherance of his message. He steps in, saves Sarah from that situation, and Abraham and Sarai move on. Also with this land, God promised Abraham, he promised him descendants, countless, countless descendants. He promised him blessings, and he promised him that from these descendants, the whole world, all the nations would be blessed, right? So here's where we come in in verse 1. Sarai had borne him no children. God, how am I going to have descendants like the sand in the, on the seashore if I don't have a child? Right? So this is, this is our starting point, and we meet Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build my family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. So we have all sorts of archaeological findings, artifacts. Um, if you remember, like, middle school social studies, the Code of Hammurabi, um, there we found some Assyrian wedding contracts, the, something called the Nuzi tablets. They all speak of this cultural practice of taking another woman, if there's no child, no heir, super important that a child be born. So this either meant a man would just continually divorce and remarry until a, a child was born, or he would um, just have lots of wives, con concubines, or not wife, but a wife and then concubines, and he'd sleep with all of them until somebody gave him a kid. Or they would be like a, a surrogate. He would take another wife, polygamy. And so just to be clear, every time we see polygamy in the Bible, it doesn't end well. Just put that out there. Um, current cultural practice, I can't imagine the, the frustration, the, um, just how bad Sarai had to feel to say, take another woman and have a child with her. Right? What, what does it have to, what point do you have to get to to do that? Even if it's culturally accepted. I don't care what the cultural practice was. It still couldn't, could not have, have felt good. And nowhere in this text is there a conversation with Hagar. Hey, you think this is a good idea? Do you want to do this? This is, this is not a good thing. Right? There are some scholars who call this rape. She had no say over what was happening. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So she kind of gets this upper hand a little bit, right? And she's, that word despises her mistress means creates misery for somebody. So she's making life miserable for Sarah, like I'm the one now. So she was, she became a wife of Abram, but she was definitely not the wife. She was like down the down the, the, totem, the totem pole. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai says to Abram, you broke this, you fix it. Right? That's kind of what that, that Hebrew idiom means. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. 
do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Alone and pregnant, Hagar takes off. Just as bad as Sarah had to feel to have another woman carry her husband's child, Hagar, alone and pregnant, sets out into the desert. I mean, and so that whatever Sarah was doing to her had to be pretty miserable to force her to make that decision. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Scholars tell us that when we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, highly likely that it is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before Jesus was born as an infant, this is his presence showing up in the Old Testament, stepping into the mess of humanity. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. A couple things about the angel of the Lord, how he addresses Hagar. He calls her by name. He calls her by name. She is a person with value. And he looks at her and he calls her by name. And then he shows curiosity, right? He's the angel of the Lord. He knows where she comes from, where she's going. He wants her to know that he's concerned about her. Where have you come from and where are you going? Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. A little bit different color highlighting because I want to stop and I just want to point out, this is a crazy passage. This is a problematic passage, right? So basically, Abram trafficked his wife to Pharaoh to save his own hide. That's the terminology that we would use. Hagar was, for all intents and purposes, raped and abused to the point of fleeing into the desert alone and pregnant. The stories of the people of God in the Bible do not reflect the character or attributes of God. People make messes in Scripture, and God steps into the messes, the messes, the mess to write them. This is not prescriptive, right? Prescriptive means I read it, it's in the Bible, I should do it. This is not prescriptive. What we're going to spend a little bit of time on in a minute here is what is prescriptive about that, and that's the way the angel of the Lord treats Hagar. That's the prescriptive piece. It's okay to acknowledge the difficulties of Scripture. There are some wackadoo passages in the book we call the Bible, and they're hard to understand. It doesn't mean we should ignore them. It doesn't mean we should try to tie them up in a neat little bow and just have a, a trite, rote answer for them. I think if we courage and faith, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us, step into them, there's more, there's more to be learned. Make sense? All right. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So he sends her, he sends her back to Abram and Sarah. And she, the angel of the Lord gives Hagar almost the exact same promise that God gave Abram. Some few big exceptions, but 
I see you and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to bless you, is what the angel of the Lord is saying to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you shall give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. We could have done another one on that. That's what Ishmael means, right? The Lord hears. The Lord hears. He will, now this next part, it doesn't sound like a good thing, but we're going to come back to it. It ends up being okay. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. That wild donkey of the man is the part that we're going to come back and gain a little bit more understanding on. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. You guys know I love the Bible Project guys. I think they're brilliant. They're creative. Um, Here's what Tim Mackey had to say about this part of the passage. Hagar was seen and heard by the Lord who sees oppression. He's the one who observes humans enslaving and taking advantage of other humans. And Yahweh, the one who is, is the God who pays special attention to the cry of the oppressed and works to bring about circumstances that will result in their liberation and their deliverance. That's the God that we're, that we're talking about. The last couple of verses of the chapter. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So another kind of cool little thing in this is that generally, dad was the one who named the kid. Abram wasn't there when he got the name. She, Hagar told Abram, this is, this is the boy's name. So she got, she got to name Ishmael, the Lord, the Lord hears. So we're going to focus on that phrase where she said, this is the God who sees me. I would encourage you to go read that passage and spend some time on your own, but we're going to dig into it a little bit here. When we think of this, no matter how bad your situation is, no matter how beat up you are, how alone you may feel, how sad you may feel, how scared you may feel, God sees you. And in seeing you, he values you. And in valuing you, you are loved by the God of the Bible. And this is not only good news for those of us who are in this room, those of us who called Jesus Lord. Who was Hagar? She was an Egyptian. She didn't know Jesus. She didn't know Yahweh at this point. God had his eye on her, saw her trouble, and stepped into her mess. Man, was that encouraging to me this week. I had a really rough week thinking about, praying for some people who are really close to me. They're not really close to God right now. Praying for them for years with little to no progress. To know that God sees them and they are not out of his reach and he's not beyond, above, or afraid of stepping into their mess. Man, there's hope for our most screwed up friends and family members. There's hope for the most screwed up ones of of us. The God of the Bible sees and goes to the vulnerable and visible so that they are seen, known, loved, and protected. Seen, known, loved, and protected. What I think is really cool about this passage is... It's not just that God sees Hagar. She sees 
him. That implies relationship. It's not just God being off and transcendent and distant, being all big and whatnot, doing his God thing. He's like all up in Hagar's stuff. And he wants her to know him. He wants her to know him. So um, the gentleman who used to run the Bridgeport Rescue Mission, his name is Terry Wilcox, a couple other area pastors and myself were meeting with him. And one of the other pastors, we were talking about how we as suburban pastors can engage our communities on behalf of the poor. Like, what can we do? And so Terry tells, tells this story, and he uses these words, right? South African Zulu words. Sikona and Soyubona. My Zulu's a little rusty, so forgive me. I want to I read this to you so I don't, I don't screw it up. There's a greeting used by the Zulu people of South Africa. The greeting is Sikona, which means I am here to be seen. And the response, Soyubona, which means I see you. I am here to be seen as a declaration of intent to fully inhabit the moment. It signals a willingness, willingness to engage with integrity, saying to be seen emphasizes no masks, no editing, no defenses. It means this is the real me. Hagar didn't have time for masks. She was literally in survival mode. She shows up to God and she, this is, this is me, God. I'm in a hot mess. I didn't do it. This was done to me, but this is who I am. And then the response, according to the Zulu tradition, to say, I see you, offers an intention to release any preconceptions and judgments so that I can see you as God created you. Releases preconceptions and judgments. So we can say, I see you as God sees you. To hear I see you is an affirmation that you exist and you are worthy and you are valued and you are loved. That's what God was communicating to Hagar. She said, I'm here, see me. And he says, I see you. There's relationship. God is being seen and she, she sees him. So, for those of you who've been around for a while, you know my affinity for this verse. We fixed our eyes on Jesus Christ, the perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross. Right? We fix our eyes on Jesus. Hagar saw Jesus in the angel of the Lord. She now had a new focal point. She had a focal point beyond her station in life as a slave. She had a focal point beyond being a pregnant single woman in the desert. She had a focal point beyond her vulnerability. She had the angel of the Lord who saw her and who, was, who allowed her to see him. We fix our eyes on Jesus and he frees us, right? I told you we'd come back to wild donkey of a man. That phrase talk, is talking about a specific kind of donkey that runs wild in the mountains north. It's kind of like... Iraq now. God was saying to Hagar, your son will not be a slave. He will be free. He will live free. You will live free. He promised her that blessing. He promised her that blessing. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we say, like, when we notice, hey, God's looking at me, and he allows us to see him. He opens up the door, right, to, to, 
to freedom, right? He's small enough to know the shackles that bind us. Hagar had actual shackles. She was a slave. And he steps in and he offers freedom. He's small enough to know the pains and the hurt, but he's big enough to heal them. He's small enough to know the hopes and dreams. Hagar wanted her son to be free. But he's powerful enough to step in and to do something about it, to fulfill those dreams. And he wants to do that for, for you. All right, so most important thing we can learn from this passage about who God is and how he acts. But there's an implied, like this is, if this is how God is, and we call himself our followers, his followers. The God of the Bible sees and goes to the vulnerable and invisible so that they are seen, known, loved, and protected. If we call ourselves followers of his, then we must do the same. Right? We have to see people. We have to be willing to look people in the eye. That person at work that's a little bit off and nobody really hangs out with, right? That person. That kid that sits by himself in a cafeteria at school, that person. That person in this room who you might not know their name yet, but you can tell they're carrying a burden, that person. And a lot of people's first reaction is, I can't do that. What am I going to say? Well, first thing is you don't have to say anything. Presence is huge. Right? Presence is huge especially for people who are hurt and broken and feel alone. There are stories in this room of, of such weight and hardship that the fact that people get out of bed every morning amazes me. Right? And that is so, can be so isolating. And to have somebody just say, hey, um, and introduce yourself. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Uh, so a story about, about presence, uh, three years ago-ish, like summer of 2020, I was at a particularly low point, lots of not fun stuff going on, and my friend Bill Stratton calls me, and he says, hey, come on, go over to my house, let's go for a swim, have a beer. He didn't share with me these great, great tips, he didn't have a sermon, he didn't have a verse, we just hung out in his pool presence, right? The, whole, the, the angel of the Lord showed concern and curiosity. If you don't know what to say to somebody, ask them their story and ask it in a way that lets them have control. Hey, you know, if you're up for it, I would love to hear your story. But if not, that's, that's totally okay. You, let, you ask the question and then then let them determine how much conversation, if any, and then where that conversation goes, right? So presence, curiosity, concern, and practical help. So the angel of the Lord told Hagar to go back. And it's not a great idea to make an argument from silence, but we don't hear anything else about Sarai messing with Hagar when she goes back. We know that she went back and she gave birth to a healthy baby and the baby lived and grew up to be this man, Ishmael. The Ishmaelites are referenced in 
five, ten different places in the Old Testament and how they interacted with the, um, the people of Israel. Um, so practi- just practical help. Hagar went back. She was fed. She had shelter. She was safe. She could raise her son. And then things got messy again later because Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. Abraham and Sarah finally had a child. And Sarah didn't like the fact that Ishmael was making fun of Isaac, so she had Abram get rid of him. And she sent them out into the desert again. The angel of the Lord shows up again, saves them, gives them water, gives them food, and reiterates the fact. She's like, you guys are free now. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make Ishmael the father. Ishmael fathered 12 tribes, right? Just like the 12 tribes of Israel, but on the other side. And many of the people who are now Arab and, and background trace their lineage back to, back to Ishmael. God blessed Ishmael, or Hagar, through Ishmael, just like he said he would. So those are things we can do individually, right? Presence, concern, curiosity, practical things. And we talked a couple weeks ago about this idea of hospitality, things we're going to do as a group. We want to intentionally extend ourselves as God empowers us to people who are in need. So during the month of October, in groups, we're going to have opportunities to make dinner for the people at Stern Village, to do some work at the Bridgeport Rescue Mission. We're trying to investigate like a habitat day, working on a house. All those kinds of things where we can go to people who otherwise might be invisible or vulnerable, and we can bring some practical help to them together, right? And if anybody asks why, we're like, well, Jesus loves us. We love you. Jesus loves you. (laughs) So, no, if you are here this morning and you are beat up and broken and sad and feel isolated, know that Yahweh sees you. He sees you, and he wants you to see him. If you, no, not not if you. We all have people in our lives who are broken and hurt and feel isolated. It's our job to go to them and to let them know with our words and our actions that they are seen and that we want to be seen by them and that they are valued and that they're loved. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we, um, we thank you that you show up in places in the Bible that we don't expect. We thank you that you show up the same way, though. You step into our messes, and for your glory and for our good and for the furtherance of your mission, you make things right. You're close to the brokenhearted. You intervene on on behalf of the hurt and those who are impacted by the sin of other people. Jesus, thank you so much. God, I pray over each person right now that they would know you this week as the God who sees me and that they might see you in turn. And Jesus, would you empower us to go out into the world and help those people who are broken and hurt and lost to feel seen and loved. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.